0: Uh, this month is a special month in the Christian calendar, two great uh, uh, celebrations. Of course, uh, on the 23rd, we will celebrate Pentecost. And then there is another special Sunday, which as non-conformists we tend to skip over or even ignore to our, uh, to our shame, really. And that is on the 30th of this month uh, is designated Uh, Trinity Sunday. Uh, This Sunday as non-conformists tends to come and go without much mention from us and yet I believe it's to our shame, because the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the great anchors of evangelical Christianity and like ourselves I'm sure it's stated in your uh, Tenets of Faith. Our first tenet states that we believe in the one true and living god who eternally exists in three persons in unity father son and holy spirit on this all-important subject of the trinity the late j.i. Packer makes this sobering observation he said the average Anglican clergyman never preaches on the trinity save on trinity sunday the average non-conformist minister who does not observe Trinity Sunday never preaches on it at all. And when I read that, I thought shame on me as a non-conformist. John Piper reminds us that the doctrine of the Trinity is foundational to the Christian faith. It is crucial for properly understanding what God is like how he relates to us and how we should relate to him. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity is uh, not something that came into being during New Testament times and as a result of New Testament writings. No, we see it way back there in Genesis, and it pops up throughout the Bible. It was J.C. Ryland, English Evangelical Anglican Bishop of the 19th century, and of course the first Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, who said this. He said, it was the whole trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole trinity again which at the beginning of the gospel seems to say, let us save man. The Trinity is Christianity's most unique, defining, incomprehensible, and yet awesome mystery. It is the revelation of who our almighty creator actually is. Not just a God, but an infinite being existing in eternity as three co equal infinite persons, consubstantial, that is, of the same substance or essence, yet distinct. The origin of the doctrine of the Trinity is the Bible, although the word Trinity is never mentioned in the bible as orthodox christians uh, sorry as all orthodox christians agree the doctrine of the trinity holds that god is in one essence but three persons god has one nature but three centers of consciousness god is only God, is only one what, says one man, but three who's. One what, but three who's. You see, some believers mistakenly call this a contradiction. Rather, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery revealed by God in his word. A contradiction would be to claim that God has only one nature, but also three natures, or that he is only one person, but also three persons. However, from the very beginning of the Church, Christians have understood the mystery of the Trinity, even before they began using the term trinity let me make one thing clear tonight there is only one god if each person of the trinity is distinct and yet fully god then should we conclude that there is more than one god obviously we cannot for scripture is clear there is but one god listen to the words of Isaiah 45, and I read verses 21 and 22. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is no one else beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. For example, the first Christians knew that the Son was the creator listen to john in his gospel he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made you see the early disciples knew that he was the ayam of the old testament equal to the father jesus himself said anyone who has seen me has seen the father the first christians also knew that the holy spirit was a separate person with his own thoughts and will john 16 13 who intercedes for us romans eight twenty seven, proving he is a distinct person from god the father since intercession requires at least two parties no one intercedes with himself furthermore A human can be forgiving for blaspheming God the Son, but not for blaspheming God the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12, 32. The New Testament writers mentions all three persons of the Trinity together on numerous occasions. And of course, the classic for us is the well-known words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 and 14, when he says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, divine honour paid equally to all three persons. The early believers knew that the Father and the Son sent the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, as another counsellor in order to live in our hearts. And these mysteries were accepted fully by the early church as revealed truth, yet without the label of the Holy Spirit. And in your Bible study tonight, I don't want to deliver a lecture but rather share with you something of the work of the Trinity in your salvation and mine as found in the opening statement of the Apostle Peter in the first chapter of his first epistle. Let me just read those two verses again. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace, and peace be yours in abundance." And here Peter writes to these Christians who due to persecution have been scattered throughout Turkey. And he is obviously a convinced unconvicted Trinitarian. And right at the very beginning of his letter, he reassures these scattered believers of the work of the Godhead in their glorious salvation. Let's look at what he says regarding each member of the Trinity and his involvement in their salvation and in our salvation this evening. First of all, he draws their attention to the Father and his work in our election. Peter says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this word chosen or elect comes from the Greek word eklektos, which means to select or to choose. It means to be picked out or selected. And if you were to look this definition up in some Bible dictionary, you'd probably find something like this. The sovereign decree of God to choose out or pick out of God's eternal and immutable decree to choose from sinners who, those whom he will save. And we are not going to enter into the debate this evening as to whether our election is conditional or unconditional. What we can say tonight is that the God of the Bible is the God of election. And Peter's words here makes it clear that their election was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Henry, in his commentary, says of them that these who are strangers, who were oppressed and despised in the world, were nevertheless in high esteem with the great God and in the most honourable state that any person can be in during life, for they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I trust this evening that, like myself, You rejoice in the grace of God in that he has elected us to be one of his children. And for me, two important questions need to be answered as far as our election is concerned. First, where is its source? And second, what is its goal? Where do we look for the answers to these two questions? Well, of course, in Scripture. It's not what John Calvin or Jacobus Arminius say, but what does the Bible say? And first of all, where is its source? Well, election runs like a thread throughout the Bible in both the Old and New Testament, and election finds its source. In the loving heart of the Father. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you. And your election and mine this evening finds its source in the loving heart of god and then secondly what is its goal well our election has a goal and its goal is for god to have a people for his own glory and peter makes that abundantly clear to us in his second chapter of this first epistle and verse nine. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our election is so that God might have a People That way who will live for him and declare his glory and praise him in an alien word. Therefore, this evening, the first person of the Godhead is at work in your salvation and in mine as the one who has chosen us to be his sons and daughters. And that election is of course an eternal choice a sovereign choice and a gracious choice not because I deserve it but because God is gracious so when we think of the Trinity and their work in our, and his work in our salvation we think of the father in our election then not the son and his work in our our, Redemption. So our election by the Father, redemption through the Son. Peter makes reference here to the precious blood of Jesus for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. And the subject of the blood is always exciting and it covers many biblical themes and truths but peter here however makes a distinctive reference to sprinkling by his blood this is not the shedding of blood but the sprinkling of it and henry to quote him again he says the blood of christ the grand bear with me sorry if something's come up on my screen He says the blood of Christ, the grand and all sufficient sacrifice typified by the legal sacrifices, was not only shed, but must be sprinkled and communicated to every one of these elect Christians. It was not only the shedding of the blood, but also The sprinkling of the blood was important, that it was applied by sprinkling. And in the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood played a very important part in Jewish life and worship. For example, the blood was sprinkled during the consecration of priests. They were sprinkled with blood. When various offerings were offered, the burnt offering, the fellowship, the sin and the guilt offering, blood was sprinkled. When a house was being cleansed from mildew, there was a sprinkling of the blood seven times. The ceremonial cleansing of lepers, the blood was sprinkled seven times. It was sprinkled on the day of atonement and on the entrance into the holy place. There is another sprinkling of the blood mentioned in the Old Testament and is found in Exodus chapter 24, when God confirmed a covenant with his people and confirmed it by the sprinkling of blood. And some biblical scholars believe that Peter here is making reference to the covenant. Listen to Exodus 24. And verse 8, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. And then, of course, we think of the, the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel 22 and verse 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, Francis, tonight, the blood that was shed has been applied by sprinkling and brings us tonight into a new and better covenant. The blood of the new covenant, which has been applied by sprinkling, has done so much for me. Let me just, because of time, Highlight three for you this evening. First of all, this blood of the Son in my salvation, it redeems me. Listen to Peter later on in verses 18 and 19 of this chapter. He says, For you know. That That you, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot and without blemish. Thank God tonight for the sprinkling of the blood of the Son, because the blood has redeemed me. And then, of course, the blood. Has cleansed me from sin. In Psalm fifty-one, we find David's prayer of repentance, repentance after his uh, adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And in verse seven, he prays, "Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow." This cleanse me with hyssop refers of course to the priest who would dip the hyssop in a bowl of blood and then sprinkle it on the house or on the leper seven times and thus he would declare him clean. Thank God the blood of the new and everlasting covenant has been applied by sprinkling upon God's elect. And tonight that blood sprinkled declares you and me clean. The Apostle John says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us or purifies us from all sin and from our hearts and trust tonight there is that great hallelujah and then of course thirdly this sprinkling of the blood bestows upon me the right to a place in heaven listen to revelation chapter 5 we're in heaven and then in verse 9 heaven sings you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you've purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So tonight, thank God that we are those who have been elect by God the Father We have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ the Son and we have entered into a new, better and eternal covenant. And this is the great work of the second person of the Godhead. And then, finally, not only elect by God the Father, sprinkled by the blood, redeemed by God the Son, But thirdly, the Holy Spirit and his work in our sanctification. Peter says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You see, because of God's holiness, he cannot enjoy fellowship with sinful men and women. Therefore, God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Sanctifies his elect, thus enabling them to have a living and intimate relationship with the holy God of heaven. And Peter is not alone in teaching the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Thessalonians, rather, chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. Thank God tonight for the Holy Spirit who sanctifies the elect and brings them into a relationship with a Christ Holy God. This evening, we rejoice as Christians, Because the Holy Trinity is actively involved in our salvation. God the Father has chosen us in grace and grace alone. God the Son has redeemed us by the sprinkling of his blood. And we have entered into a new and glorious covenant. And God the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. Making us fit for heaven. And he is at work transforming our lives, making us more like Jesus. It was the great Baptist preacher, Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said, It needs the Trinity to make a Christian. It needs the Trinity to cheer a Christian. It needs the Trinity. To complete a Christian, it needs the Trinity to create in a Christian the hope of glory. Thank God for Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so we say tonight, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity.